Hey, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to our favorite day of the week, Saturday. Another amazing session continuing on day seven of Surah Nisa, right? Day seven? Okay, pretty incredible. Um, as always, um, I wanted to call people's attention to yesterday's amazing khutbah. Um, as I said last week, you never think they'll get better. But I think yesterday's was probably one of the best, if not the best of all time. And that's saying a lot um, for, you know, being on this train with Sheikh for now almost 30 years. Um, and I think that, you know, I was talking to someone here, like there's probably a checklist that you could make about khutbahs and what makes them really special and really powerful. Because it's not just that they talk about the Quran. It's not just that they talk about something that's happening in the world, something that's meaningful, something that touches you. I mean, these are things that honestly we've grown accustomed to and maybe become a little bit spoiled because our khutbahs every week are so incredible. And I remember back to the days when we would go to the masjid and khutbahs were just so painful, and they probably still are in many spaces. But we, we have the great blessing of experiencing um, really powerhouse khutbahs here. And they're so special when they um, address what's happening in the world, what's happening in your life, that make a difference and, and make it thought-provoking for um, how you can you know, change as a person. And so um, this was, yesterday's was particularly powerful. One thing, I know, so I, it, you know, there, you can't do it justice, but just, you know, like, one of the really important messages that, that was emphasized yesterday, as in other um, khutbahs, in other halakhas, is just again the the individual relationship with God and how it really comes down to um, an individual and thinking about you know we hear this um, you know this uh, the idea God is closer to you than your jugular vein and I thought I was completely blown away yesterday I think the poet side came out of Sheikh when he talked about how you know if you think about like how blood courses through your veins um, and you need that as um, a lifeline to living that God is even closer than that, and that even if you, you know, are not aware of the blood that's coursing through your veins, it's still there, it's still your lifeline, and same with God, and that God, and, and God being closer than that, and, you know, when you think about how as individuals and as Muslims, oftentimes we forget about God, or God gets to come into our life when it's convenient for us, um, God is always there, there's just so much um, that was so beautiful about yesterday's um, khutbah at that level, which is just talking about your own personal relationship with God, and then to expand from that to reflect on our world and what's happening in Ukraine and how to understand the language being used, the um, symbols, the, just the people's attitudes, because I think this has been such a painful time for us, as particularly as Muslims, when you see how people talk about Ukraine and the people of Ukraine, rightly so, they're humans. But then to feel like, you know, why is this not being said about Muslims who are also humans? And it's painful, it's difficult to watch the news. And so, um, and the Muslim reaction, you know, requires an honest voice. Um, and there were things that, that the Sheikh said yesterday that were just, you know, mind-blowing. It's a reflection of someone who spends a lot of time reflecting about our world, what it means for us to le live as ethical Muslims. And um, it's, it's just so powerful, and it's just such a reminder of what a blessing it is for us here to be able to experience it. Because, you know, I tell people about khutbahs, you know, watch us virtually wherever you are, you know, watch the recordings, and people do. But you, when you don't have that, you don't really realize what it's like not to have that. Um, and so I'm, I'm always extremely, extremely grateful. Um, and partly because, um, just to give you a sense of like, you know, one of the things that I think is really extraordinary about the work that we do is that we come into contact with a lot of people who have, you know, serious life crises, things that are happening and they need help, they don't know where else to turn. They've found us some way, God has led them to the Sulu Institute, to the Sheikh, you know, uh, to me. 
Um, and a lot of times they reach out and they, they, they need help. And these are things um, that remind you of how serious um, life is. Um, serious life and death, serious in terms of decisions you make, serious in terms of how you understand your own purpose and your own self and how you fit into the world. So, you know, just to give you like three, three points from um, the last week that, um, which kind of touch on different ends of the spectrum. So um, I had one conversation with someone who um, is, says he's a convert, um, I think is unsure. He has fallen in love with a woman who is a Muslim, who comes from a traditional family. Um, he himself is American um, and comes from sort of a right-wing, <laughs> Trump-oriented family, someone that you would not want to tell you know, I'm considering being Muslim, but I think in his heart he feels a pull. Um, I don't know him well, so I can't say a lot, but I had um, a very long conversation with him because he's a friend of a friend. Um, and he was grappling with just the confusion um, of as, that I know very well as a convert. When you hear one message, you hear the beauty of a message, and then you, you go to the mosque, you interact with Muslims, even people you know, that, that are close to him, that have a vested interest in him adopting Islam, who have you know, very comfortably um, as, as anointed themselves as you know, sheikh or sheikha, telling him things about Islam um, that you know, for someone who has no exposure to Islam, except for the negative baggage that comes with just living in America every day, you know, it's someone who's trying to navigate this and trying to understand, like, you know, okay, I hear something very beautiful about the message, but when I actually interact in Muslim spaces or with people, there's so much that I don't really quite understand. And when I get people who say that they know a lot about Islam and they explain things to me, I'm still even more confused. So um, the person who asked me to speak with him um, is very, knows Asuli very well. And so I had, you know, the, um, the chance to speak with him about just, you know, what it's like to be a convert, how to, uh, how to address those kinds of things, um, and, you know, gave him my, my convert advice. But, you know, it's like he, I, I can relate so well, like someone who is in the cross, you know, sort of at these crossroads. On, the, on one path you've got, or one side of you, you've got your family who just will never understand why you're even interested and probably will disown you and think that you're crazy. Um, and then you're, on the other hand, you know, the, the Muslim um, team that's rooting for you that isn't actually great for, in terms of guiding you, you know, for what's in your heart. Um, and then, you know, this, um, and then Asuli, that, you know, you're hearing things now that actually help, you know, I mean, I felt very grateful because of the feedback that I got after our conversation was that it was immensely helpful because I tried to give him tools and I tried to give him a methodology and tried to, un you know, like what we talk about here, which is, you know, understanding, first of all, that it ha things have to be beautiful. God is beautiful. You know, God loves what's beautiful. Um, if something is morally ugly, it simply cannot be from the divine. It cannot be Islamic. Um, these are things that are not complicated, but they're things that you almost just need to hear to reassure yourself that, okay, you know, no, God does not want us to go and be so judgmental about people and kill people and, you know, whatever, you know, whatever you're, you're encountering, you have the tools within you to understand and discern what is genuinely beautiful versus what is not. Um, and, you know, so it was a long conversation, obviously, and I, I think that hopefully um, uh, the feedback, as I said, was, was very positive. And I, I think that, you know, sometimes you, you need the navigation. So that was one, one conversation that I had this week. Another conversation on the other end of the spectrum is someone called me um, who was really shaken because, um, and I, you know, told this person that I would leave everything, you know, anonymous 
But this person was really shaken because um, that person's chaplain, and I don't know if this chaplain was male or female, um, had been very instrumental in this person's um, you know, growth as a Muslim, um, was someone that this person came, became very close to in a university environment, um, was himself, the, the, the chaplain um, was a convert um, and had gone through many different experiences um, and ultimately recently decided to convert back to Christianity. And, you know, this is one thing for an individual um, who, you know, is struggling with faith but doesn't, you know, teach others or doesn't, you know, um, act as a chaplain to others. You know, this was something that, that really was shaking the person that I spoke to, a friend. Um, and, you know, clearly this chaplain knew that knowledge of, of that conversion could shake a lot of people's faith because that chaplain, you know, affected a lot of people and helped a lot of people become you know, more, um, more Muslim, more, more, you know, uh, convinced and, you know, um, so, you know, it, and, and then that, of course, shakes the faith of everyone who was close to that chaplain, and they don't know quite how to process it, and they don't quite know how to understand it, or what questions to ask, or how to, how to deal with that, and so this person turned to, you know, to us, and I spoke with, with, um, with the person and you know we kind of again two-hour conversation talking about you know all the different things and the thing that was um so i guess for me personally gratifying was that as i was getting posed really difficult questions about this circumstance i felt like i could draw on things that i'd learned in the last year through project illumin and through understanding the quran better and understanding like this moral message that I actually could say something um and that was convincing because I, I and I recognize, you know, when you have sometimes you have these experiences where you think back to where you were like a year ago and what you if, if you would have been able to answer certain difficult questions and then now you're getting posed certain questions after all of this learning and you feel like, oh my gosh, I can just pull it out of my back pocket. It's so comfortable to me. I know exactly what to say. And it's that is such a gift and such a blessing because I feel like oftentimes with Muslim spaces, you know, like, I, and one of the things that I said in one of these conversations is, you know, you know when you're hearing BS. You know when someone is trying to explain something to you and tell you something about Islam or whatever that just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't ring true with you. But you know when you hear the truth, and you know because it touches you deep in your soul, in your heart, in your mind. It, it feels right. It feels different. And so I, you know, was saying, like, when this person was trying to talk about what was happening with the chaplain, they conveyed that, you know, it's probably because of all of the experiences that they had had, that they had gone to scholars and didn't get good answers that were compelling, that this chaplain didn't feel that there were safe spaces that they themselves could turn to with when they were grappling with doubt, and that they clearly, um, you know, obviously had not been exposed to the kind of learning that we have been exposed to here, which has been so, you know, amazing for confidence building in, in your faith. So it was, you know, like, um, challenging because I wanted to just convey, um, and this is someone who has watched some of the Project Illumin um, halakas and loves them, but just, you know, got busy with work and all of this kind of thing, so it was not caught up, and which is fine, you know, of course everybody's busy, and it's, we are in a, a really blessed situation where we can actually just focus on this, and this doesn't happen, um, except by, you know, by God's planning. Um, so, you know, I was just trying to explain to this person, you know, um, there's so much learning, so much of these questions, all of these questions that you're asking me can be addressed through this learning. It's there for you, I'm not trying to rush you, but just to say, to comfort your heart, you know, that, that this is, um, this is there. And what was interesting is this person that I spoke to, 
um, who spent so much time with the chaplain, so that they used to talk about Islam, they used to talk about all these questions, all these things that they saw that were you know, hypocritical or crazy or whatever that they just didn't get within the Muslim community. And it's very interesting because the person that I talked to turned towards a Suli and all of this learning to satisfy a lot of those questions. And the chaplain turned back to sort of, I guess what he, he or she associated as home, which was Christianity and Catholicism and, you know, going back to um, something that, you know, a space that provided a lot of love and support and comfort and something that they didn't get through um, the Islamic community. And so, you know, it's really, it's, it's hard to, to hear that. I mean, that's, that's a tragedy, that's a loss for us, especially for us who know that this is the true message. This is so beautiful, but we know it with conviction because we've now gone through this learning and that's something that you can't really replicate for other people. Um, and, you know, again, it's kind of like a lot of this stuff sort of triangulates because then you come back and then you hear this amazing khutbah yesterday where the sheikh really zeroes in on this comes down to your individual relationship with God and that, you know, if your relationship with your God and your relationship with your faith is, is shaken because of what you see other Muslims do or what you see in the news or, um, you know, or something external to you, then, then there's something in your relationship that's not right, that you haven't built then the real relationship, which is your relationship with God. And I think that's, that's such an important um, message. So the third point, the third conversation, which I started to have and will continue to have, and again, like just underscores the seriousness of everything that we do. Um, I have a conversation tomorrow with someone that I talked about in one of my very early halakas at the beginning of the Suli Institute, um, back in probably sometime in 2018. I mentioned the story of a convert um, who had reached out to me, um, and he had said that for many years he knew, like he came to be interested in Islam, he, he I think had read one of the professor's books when he was in high school. And so he sort of got the, the seed planted that Islam was, was the right way and became convinced that Islam was right, but didn't want to convert because he liked his lifestyle. He liked drinking, he liked going out with his friends, he liked partying, he liked you know doing the things that he would have to give up if he decided to convert. So for a long time, he didn't convert, about 10 years, even though he knew Islam was the true message. Um, so what made him finally convert was that God finally like, told him, okay, no more messing around. You've been, you know, you, you know what's going on. I'm gonna give you cancer. So he got cancer. And so I talked about this, um, and you know, he's been in this struggle back and forth where you know, he tried a lot of medications that you know, helped him, he was doing better, um, went into remission, then it came back, and then you know, was on different experimental medications. And now recently, um, he found out that his liver is failing and that he probably has one month, maybe two, maybe three to live. And so, um, you know, alhamdulillah, he has been with Usuli and supporting us and watching and all of that for, a long time, and so he agreed that I could have a conversation with him, which, you know, it's a really unusual situation when you realize, okay, you know you have a month left, maybe, um, and so, you know, he agreed to have a very open, frank conversation about life and death and conversion and all the different kinds of things that, you know, these are things that are uncomfortable, but um, are important. You know, a lot of times people don't want to talk about these things, but you know, this is this is serious, right? We're all gonna die and we're all gonna reach a point. And 
some of us you know um, have the gift of knowing when and some of us don't but ultimately we all end up in the same place and so I'm hoping you know I'm praying I'm grateful that he's allowing us to have that conversation so um, hopefully that's something to look forward to but I think that will be extremely valuable um, so you know three three data points that just you know underscore for me personally how important this journey is how valuable it is to be able to feel so um, assured in 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 your faith because the stuff we're learning here answers so many questions it makes things make sense and from that you can emerge and help others to make sense of their faith and I'm I feel so grateful and so blessed. I just um, passed my 28 uh, year anniversary as a convert this past week, and that to me is a more important birthday to, than my actual birthday. But well, both of them are important. But you know, but I'm grateful that you know I have the blessing of it, during that time feeling so um, so blessed to honestly always have a means of. Um, dealing with or learning I guess that whatever doubt comes whatever shakes you know like your whether it's your faith or your you know you're looking at your community you're looking at your world you know so much of it um, comes back to how you connect with God and understand your world that's that's your that's your true um, antidote to all the ugliness and everything that's out there and as Sheikh mentioned in his yesterday um, it's it's like it doesn't it, that if you have that anchor in God then it doesn't matter all of the ugliness and everything else you see I mean it, it matters in the sense that it, it hurts you it pains you but um, the only thing that really um, keeps you whole is that connection to God and I am so grateful that I've seen in the last year my own like understanding increase through these halakas um, and that just with that comes a lot of ability to help others but also just to feel like oh my god there's just so much here and and this is the way this is what matters and it's just you know um you just feel grateful what can i say you just feel extremely extremely grateful and as i've said you know i always feel like um you know god gave me exposure to all of this not for my own edification uh, my own edification my own satisfaction of my own curiosity no it's so that i can serve others so that i can be there so i can be on call for my friend who's got cancer that i can you know, talk to people um, when they, they need to understand, you know, why does everything look the way it looks? How do I make sense of it? Um, I feel really grateful that I, I can do that. Um, and so I want to just, I guess, encourage people, you know, I know people get busy and they can't watch this, but the answers are all here and it's so, it's so amazing. So inshallah, hopefully um, you'll always carve out time at least to watch the khutbah um, or, you know, listen to a little bit of a halakha whenever you get a chance because it's, it's really powerful. So, um, and also, let me just say, um, we, two weeks from tomorrow, um, talking about serious things, we are going to have a conversation um, about spiritual and sexual abuse. It's actually a Q&A with the sheikh. It'll be a Zoom um, virtual kind of um, event. Um, and so you can get information at our website. We're going to have a Zoom link and people can join. So we're going to um, address a lot of the misconception and hopefully dispel myths around, um, you know, what our responsibility is as human being, as individuals and also as a community um, for people who find themselves dealing with um, abuse, particularly at the hands of religious authority. And this is a really important conversation. And, and I think um, tell your friends because I think there are a lot of people who will, will 
hopefully value get value from that. So thank you for joining us for another amazing session. I'm looking forward to the next installment of Surah Anissa. Okay, so that's a good point. Um, it will be recorded. And uh, Sheikh just asked me the conversation I'm having tomorrow with my friend if it would be live. It's not going to be live, but we'll record it and edit it and then upload it. So you'll have a chance to see. So, okay. Oh, I didn't have that on. Did you get that? A recording, um, and we'll edit it and then we'll upload it yeah, afterwards. It's not yeah, going to be a live stream. Yeah. So. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim. Alhamdulillah ya alamin. Wassalatu wassalam. Ala Muhammad wa ala alih. Wa ala alihi al-Tayyibin al-Mutahharin al-Mayamin. Wa ala ashabihi al-Muhtadin. Wa ala man ittabahu bi ihsanin ila yawm al-Din. اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين طيب so إن شاء الله we will continue with سورة النساء سبحان الله when I hear It's not, of course, obviously, it's not the first time, but when I hear a, a story about a Muslim chaplain that um, that the left Islam and went back to Christianity and, and uh, the thing that I talked about about uh, in the khutbah, you know, these 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 dedicated efforts by which uh, there is so much money that is poured into this dedicated efforts to convert Muslims to Christianity, in particular, by these various evangelical, mostly American evangelical organizations but their their main their, their uh, I mean, unless you do your homework and you actually study this it, it is difficult for people to imagine how much money is spent on converting Muslims um, and not just in the West but even I mean uh, not just among the immigrant population in the West, but even among the African-American population, the Muslim African-American population in the U.S., uh, immigrant population in various Western countries, um, and then in Muslim countries themselves, like Iraq and Palestine and Afghanistan. And... In my opinion, that there is a, there is a sort of a, an, an understanding on part of some governments, like the French government, the uh, Dutch government, the Swedish government, um, and and some blatant governments like the Polish government and the Romanian government. In, in Romania, there there was a Muslim that. 
um, won the elections to be prime minister, and they refused to allow her to take the prime minister position, although she won the, pres the elections, the president, according to the system, refused to let her be a prime minister because she's Muslim, solely because she's Muslim. But all these governments, they seem to, th to, to have a policy that the answer to what they perceive as the cultural threat of Muslim immigrants, these large Muslim minorities in Europe, um, is to convert them, or at least to dilute their Islam to one extent or another. And so you, you, you find a lot of private money, but you're also surprised when you do your homework as to the type of um, barriers that go down when it comes to, for instance, missionaries getting visas to go to Iraq, missionaries, uh, the, the, even the, the American government pulling strings to force the Iraqi government to permit missionaries to go in, same as Palestine, um, or to go in through the United Arab Emirates, which has become a major entry point for a lot of missionaries. And, and you know, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm, every time, subhanAllah, and every time I, 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 I encounter this, um, You know, the, the, there is the greatest fitna to our human beings is, the greatest fitna is the fitna of pride. And so many human beings, they, they are so proudful about the way their brain works and the way their emotions work, that just because they experience something emotionally, they are, the, the idea of, well, my emotions aside, I ought to put aside judgment until I am in a position to intellectually engage the questions that are troubling me. And finding the proper venues to have these intellectual questions engaged, um, it takes a level of humility that most people are not capable of. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala warns us about kathratul khabith, right? Allah says in the Quran that what is wrong and what is evil is in fact going to be the majority. And al-tayyib is going to be the minority. And fitnatul khabith, the fitna that comes from perceiving what is wrong and simply assuming because lived experience uh, is the wrongest replicated by human beings that, and that your emotions are troubled and uh, destabilized by 
by how pervasive what is wrong is. Um, you, you feel a great deal of pity for, for these people on one level, but on the other level, quite honestly, I just, um, time and time again, I feel every moment I, I live on this earth, in which I'm not using my time. I mean, when you have, Allah blesses us with a scholar like uh, um, Hassan Farhan al-Maliki. A scholar like that is thrown in prison. And so you find, then Allah put you in this situation where you can be a scholar, but you're not thrown in prison because, you know, Allah willed that instead of being born in Saudi Arabia and grow up in Saudi Arabia, where most certainly I would have ended up in prison, or Egypt, um, every I, I just feel the magnitude of the waste for every moment instead of serving the Islamic cause um, I'm doing things that serve dunya. Um, and, um, you know, I don't want to, our problem, our fundamental is the, our level of education. I mean, even the, the, when Grace was talking about a person who is interested in Islam, but then meets Muslims who, you know, are self-declared shiuch. Um, the problem with these Muslims is their level of education. They are, if you're educated, the, the first thing you, that, that comes to you through a proper education is humility is that you don't talk about what you don't know. You just feel it's beneath you. You feel really off. You feel extremely uncomfortable when you, whenever you start talking about something you don't know. So you're afraid from doing it. And the reason Muslims have no level of refrain spewing off about everything is because they, Muslims, overall uh, are very ill-educated in their tradition. Their, their level of sophistication about their own tradition is just so... But it, it is, I mean, I've said this a million times, but I just can't, you know, our, those who don't like Islam it's like, imagine, imagine if you, you have an invasion, right? Russia invades Ukraine. How much money is Russia putting in this invasion? Imagine if the defense against Russia is 1% of what Russia is spending on the invasion. It, it boggles the mind. Our enemies the enemies of our faith are spending so much money to get to your children. To, 
and I personally think that you know we ought to cut the BS. We we re, we have to just cut the BS. The, I don't care what this chaplain says. I am absolutely a hundred percent sure that Islamophobia got to him. I don't care to what extent he tries to pretend that he is, you know, a fair-minded, objective thinker, independent. No, Islamophobia has gotten to everyone. It, 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 it's in Europe. Islamophobia has become part of what is in your genetic code. Every single Muslim on the face of this earth is now influenced by Islamophobia. Whether you remain in your religion, whether you leave the religion, whether you, it, it, even if you are, you know, you're, you, you have a problem relating to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. My view in this day and age, Islamophobia got to you. Islamophobia has gotten to everyone. And, and the amazing thing, it's just, it is PR, pure and simple, nothing more. I mean, and people spending money on PR. And on the other side of things, our spending on the jihad against Islamophobia is nominal, is minimal. It, it is, uh, it, you know, if, can you can you imagine if if you are counting your days to meet Allah and and, and you are thinking to yourself, okay, I, I'm. Let me think very deeply about the testimony because I don't want to be thinking on my feet in the hereafter. So, what am I going to say to Allah? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. This Ummah has is, has become. Uh, really hot. Um, okay. So, we stopped at this, remember what we said about it was, uh, we stopped at 88, right? Okay, so what we said about and the and the and the 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 place of salam or the place of what it means to reciprocate virtue reciprocate goodness and why does it occur in Surah An-Nisa, in this surah dedicated to a reform project, 
that is committed to addressing al-istidaf, disempowerment. Okay. So up to 86, of course, وَإِذَا حُيِّتُمْ بِتَحِيَّةٍ This is the ayah about, that we talked about, about, the reciprocating virtue. Until we get to 87, which, as we said, the sort of every time the Qur'an deals with positive, specific legislation, the Qur'an textualizes this specific positive legislation in the context of a larger moral message. And then it gets to a penultimate statement, sort of like the, 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 the ultimate conclusion about this moral message, and then shifts gear to a related topic, but it's a New subcategory, if you will. Okay. So now, فَمَالَكُمْ فِي الْمُنَافِقِينَ فِئَتَيْنَ وَاللَّهُ أَرْكَسَهُمْ بِمَا كَسَبُوا أَتُرِيدُونَ أَنْ تَهَدُوا مَنْ أَضَلَّ اللَّهُ وَمَنْ يُضْلِلِ اللَّهُ فَلَنْ تَجِدِ اللَّهُ سَبِيلًا وَدُّوا لَوْ تَكْفُرُونَ كَمَا كَفَرُوا فَتَكُونُونَ سَوَاءً فَلَا تَتَّخِذُوا مِنْهُمْ أَوْلِيَاءً حتى يهاجروا في سبيل الله فإن تولوا فخذوهم واقتلوهم حيث وجدتموهم ولا تتخذوا منهم وليا ولا نصيرا So this is now 88 and 89 We didn't talk about 88 I thought we did We did, we, we did? Oh, 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 yeah, because, oh, 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 okay, no, because 89 is, is um, yeah, a continuation of 88. So, okay, so, yes, that's why, um, okay. So, remember that we said about 88 that there, we have a number of reports that, that tell us that 88, was talking about this particular category of people or this particular set of events so that and, and as we said last halaqa that uh, the reports say that um, the, the, the one that is the weakest of them is that it, this is intended to talk about those who uh, reneged and uh, turned away during the Battle of Uhud that they, they marched up to a point and returned, as we said. Um, but the, the, the more relevant reports are the ones that tell, tell us that it, these, the, the ayah is talking about people who migrated and then apostated, and some of them migrated but did not apostate, but told the Prophet, that we miss home, we want to go back to Mecca, we remain Muslim. But 
breaking ranks with the Ummah of the Prophet and as well as um, folks that had converted to Islam were capable of migrating but refused to migrate because of the, 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 they were not willing to make the sacrifice that migration would entail. Now, notice Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes to these categories of people. Now, the easiest of the categories is the ones who converted, migrated, and apostated. They're no longer Muslim, and they are now part of the Meccan enemy. And so when in 89, we see the Quran saying that they would love to see you deny the truth, even as they have denied it, so that you should be like them. Do not therefore take them for allies until they forsake the domain of evil for the sake of God, and if they revert to open enmity, seize them and slay them wherever you may find them. That is not as surprising, because we, we, we understand the, this is talking about people who apostated and now have joined the ranks of the enemy again. But this is only one category of people. And remember that the other two categories were those who went back to Mecca but remained Muslim and also those who converted but did not migrate. And Allah is as we will see Allah paints with a very particular brush so Allah's not saying that either they're all enemies or they're all fine But as we will see, that the fact that they've put themselves in a compromising position, the compromising position is that being amongst the Meccans, when Mecca is in open warfare with Muslims, their claim of commitment to Islam becomes problematic. It is possible that some of them might avoid being marred or being tangled up in enmity towards Muslims. But how is that going to happen when they are living in Mecca being in Mecca, there is an expectation by the Meccans that they 
in one form or another contribute to the war effort. So some of them might in fact be expected to join the Meccan army in battle against Muslims, but even because that's the normally when you ask about this category, people tell you, well, you know, they were there were some of them that were forced to join the Meccan army, but this was only it, this applied to particular individuals and not the majority. But even if they don't physically join the Meccan army. Living in Mecca, they would be expected to contribute in most of the examples we have financially to the war effort against Muslims. So here, the presumption is nearly a presumption or a jurisdictional presumption, if you speak in legal terms, that there is a polity at war against the polity. So the presumption is, is that what belongs to that polity is part of what is defined as hostile to us. The fact that they are Muslim might come in, in fact, to give them immunity. But the presumption is against them. And here it points to something that is quite critical many people thought to find ways to make accepting the Islamic message less sacrificial. To carve up a, their own sort of idiosyncratic deal that would allow them to not sacrifice their self-interests, but to say they're Muslim anyway. And Allah comes and lays this bare and says, listen, those who've gone back or those who continue living among the Meccan polity, they are presumptively in a hostile state towards you, and therefore you are entitled to this presumption. So in fact, don't consider them allies. Don't, don't approach them as allies because what is demanded of them is that they migrate, is that they actually make the sacrifice and come and until they migrate. Now, 
Okay. But if they continue to refuse to migrate, which, as we said, several categories, even those who went back, then then they presumptively become part of the enemy. And the law of war, the regular law of war, applies, is that a hostile person carries this hostility, sort of in personam hostility, or in personam presumption, that they carry their hostility with them wherever they go. This was the old law of war. Actually, it's, it still is, except for the United Nations Charter, which is a huge treaty that, that modifies it because of the terms of the treaty. Okay. Now, how is this presumption, however, qualified? So, there, look at 90. إِلَّا الَّذِينَ يَصِلُونَ إِلَىٰ قَوْمٍ بَيْنَكُمْ وَبَيْنَهُمْ مِثَاقٍ أو جاءوكم حصرت صدورهم أن يقاتلوكم أو يقاتلوا قومهم ولو شاء الله لصلتهم عليكم فلقاتلوكم فنعتزلوكم فلم يقاتلوكم ألقم إليكم السلام فما جعل الله لكم عليهم سبيلا. This is ninety. So how is this presumption modified? Well, the presumption then creates exceptions. And the exceptions are as to individuals who, A, they, they well, listen, have ties with people to whom you yourselves are bound by a covenant. So they are a special category. They belong to a clan, to a tribe itself that you have a peace treaty with. So in other words, although they live in Quraysh, they say to you, it's it's a fantastically sort of an, an illustration of how law and morality work. So although they, they live in Quraysh, they are saying, but you know, we are from the clan of Banu Ghatafan, and you have a treaty with Banu Ghatafan. And the treaty with Banu Ghatafan is a, a non-hostility treaty, so not, you know, a treaty where, and so I don't consider myself my, your enemy because although I physically exist in Quraysh, I consider myself, my, my loyalty and fidelity is to the people that you have a treaty with. So that's one exception. The other exception are individuals who you know or you have come to know. Although we cannot say they, they are mustadafin. Mustadafin are the people who don't have a choice. They are in Mecca and they are coerced, so they are compulsively remain in Mecca. But there is another category of people. People who are not coerced, but fit within 
an exception. In legal terms, it's like a waiver, a discretionary waiver. Those are people that they, um, their, Muhammad Asad translates it, their hearts shrink from the thought of making war. They are, they, they are emotionally unable. On the one hand, they can't accept the idea of actually making war with you. They, 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 this idea tears them to pieces. But at the same time, emotionally, they can't get themselves to fight their own people. So on a case-by-case -case basis, as demonstrated by the seerah of the Prophet والسلام, on a case-by-case -case basis, then you grant, you, you recognize like a legal waiver, if you will, as to these people that, you know, yes, in principle, if you become a Muslim, but you are not willing to make the sacrifices that being a part of an ummah requires, then, you're, uh, then you are not a part of this ummah and you have made your choice to be part of another ummah. However, if it comes to your knowledge that these are, there are individuals who are, I, I mean, I, I can use the word weak, Emotionally, psychologically, they're, they're, you know, they're, they, 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 they don't want to fight you. They don't want to fight their own people. And then here, Allah's advice is quite remarkable. And it is, it, it, that's what bears true reflection. وَلَوْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ لَصَلَّطَهُمْ عَلَيْكُمْ So, Remember that if Allah would have willed they would have in fact become your enemies or turned against you. So in other words, don't go looking for animosity or enmity. That's not the point. There is as a matter of principle There is a stand that you take as a matter of principle. And then there are these humanitarian discretionary exceptions to the principle that you consider on a case-by-case -case basis. And remember, as you're exercising this discretion, it is not the cool thing to you know, flex your muscles over a weak human being. That's not the point. That if Allah would have willed that weak human being, Allah could have made them a sworn enemy and a brutal enemy at that. So as long as they are not carrying a weapon against you, leave them alone. Again, people, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, Maybe this is the, the, the historian in me, the legal comparativist in me, 
Um, religious texts have, you know, you. It is not like, um, um, you know, we're not talking about an, an an infinite sum. We are talking about a finite sum of examples in human history. What represents religious texts? We can, we, you know, if you're, no one will probably live enough to master all religious texts, but you can live long enough to be aware of all the religious texts that that human that exist in a human experience. For this type of layered ethical treatment is so atypical and so exceptional in a religious text and even in legal thinking, it, the idea of of what I'm expressing as exceptional waivers on for, on humanitarian grounds, it takes human beings several centuries before that enters into law. It enters into the common law system first, and then with limited to to with major caveats, it eventually is also accepted into the civil law system. But in, in, for a, in, a comparativist, someone who studies the intellectual history of human beings, it blows my mind that you, you have this type of um, careful crafting or careful teaching of morality. Uh, you know, it, it, you're not you're not painting with a b- broad brush, um, which was classic, typical of the medieval mind. The medieval mind, the very idea of tolerance. It, I mean, it took centuries to develop, but of course, it's it's anchored in Islam long before. But anyway, the the, the medieval mind, because it often thought in 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 terms of, in illustrative terms or in demonstrative terms, in, in in the in in the in terms of examples, um, that type of sort of subtlety of approach, and deep concern with justice, is quite remarkable. Okay, so then. So, if they leave you alone, فَلَمْ يُقَاتِلُوكُمْ وَأَلْقُمْ إِلَيْكُمُ السَّلَمْ and they and if, and you know from from them that they have no ill intentions towards you. Remember that the Allah warns us that many of these hypocrites, I mean we can call them hypocrites. Many of these people who tell you, yeah, we're Muslim, but we're not willing to make the sacrifice. Oh, we're, or we we converted, we migrated, and then we went back to Mecca. Uh, that many of them, their hearts are so corrupt that Allah, in fact, goes as far as saying, "What do takfuruna kama kafaru?" That they they in fact wish Allah breaches the point of of describing 
their weakness as a kufr. Because they wish that you, you in turn, were as weak as, as they are. That they wish, in fact, that you were not being a Muslim didn't involve examples like people like like you who are willing to sacrifice everything for the cause. They look at you and find and the, the reason they 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 uh, it's so, e- so easy for them to give themselves licenses in supporting those who are intent on killing you and fighting you and dominating you is because they are their, their weakness has reached the point of immorality to them the prince they don't live by the principle they live by their impulses and their passion so allah goes as far as describing them as in, as being as engaged in kufr and that they in fact want others to be like them and allah warns muslims against them and says you know be careful these are no uh, allies and these are although they they talk the talk but they are not muslims that are entitled to the sanctity of islam but yet at the same time allah comes back and says but Yet again, that doesn't mean you have a broad license to ignore situations where this general presumption would not apply. Discernment and caution. Then Allah says, 91, سَتَجِدُونَ آخَرُونَ يريدون أن يأمنوكم ويأمنوكم وهو كل ما ردوا إلى كل كل ما ردوا إلى الفتنة أركسوا فيها فإن لم يعتزلوكم ويلقوا إليكم السلام ويقفوا أيديهم فخذوهم واقتلوهم حيث حيث تقفتموهم وأولئكم جعلنا لكم عليهم سلطانا مبينا You will find then others who would like to be safe from you as well from their own folk, but who, whenever they are faced a new temptation to evil, plunge into it headlong. Hence, if they... So, the amazing thing, then Allah comes back and says, but if you will, it's sort of even an exception to the exception. Or, I mean, not quite, because it's not really an exception, but it's a warning. It's a caveat. It's a caution, point of caution. Don't confuse people who don't have ill will towards you. The people that Allah tells you, if Allah would have willed, they would have become your enemies. So don't go around looking for enemies. Don't confuse these folks with another category of people. People who come and say, we really do not want to fight you. We are not your enemies. We are your brothers. We are Muslims like you. And they might even mean it when they say it. But 
what is their problem? Their problem is that when it comes time to make a stand, they in fact always make the wrong decision. They, they, they cave in to their weakness where that ultimately their decisions are d- decisions that contribute to the war against you. And it's more specifically from the ex- historical examples that we have, these are people that when not just wrote the Prophet and said we 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 are believers and so on, but some of them actually went as far as either sending messengers to uh, one or another of the prominent companions, or even traveling to Medina and you know swearing up and down that they're not enemies. But then, when it came then Muslims would hear that, in fact, they contributed X amount of money to the war effort. They gave the Qurayshis X amount of money. When the Qurayshis said, we're raising funds to fight Muhammad, they said, okay, well, you can have this. Or when the Qurayshis said, you know, um, show that you, that you, in fact, one of them, I don't remember his name, the, Maybe it will come to me. Um, the Qurayshi said, you know, we allow you to, to uh, although you converted to Islam and you went to join Muhammad and then you return, and we allow you to still have your, you know, your trade, your caravans and so on. In order for us to continue allowing you to do your business, you must dedicate a percentage of this business to fighting against Muhammad. Yeah, he swore up and down that I have no, you know, I don't want to fight you Muslims. I'm, but again, there, Allah warns us, as we will see, and inshallah when we tie the surah together at the end, Allah is teaching us an invaluable lesson. Disempowerment, oppression, subjugation most of the time doesn't occur because simply there is a strong and powerful external enemy. It occurs because of the hypocrites amongst you. The ailment of the subjugated, the ailment of the disempowered what is it that, that perpetuates situations of subjugation and disempowerment, as Surah An-Nisa will teach us? It's hypocrisy, weakness of faith, weakness of virtue, weakness of morality. You, you know what's right, but you don't do what's right.
الامام الكواكبي he doesn't say it in the context of surah an-nisa but in in his in his book that ought to be really studied and read by every muslim about about despotism he says it is very rare for that external defeat before an external enemy is the conclusion it is not the process the process is always internal weakness so you're defeated within before the the external enemy actually is capable of dominating you and the defeat within i mean in in, in my view and because this is what Surah An-Nisa teaches, is this ailment of hypocrisy. And, and, you know, we say hypocrisy, we think of, it's not people who who just simply, you know, uh, um, go around pretending to be X, but it is often people who themselves are confused about their own morality and their own ethics. So, you know the, the 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 simplistic and extremely unhelpful idea that a hypocrite is someone who's sitting in the dark, you know, laughing maniacally about the the sinister plots. That that's 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 cartoonish. That's not reality. Okay. So again, as to those folks. Who, despite their their their, you know, the, all their PC talk, all their p- politically correct talk, but yet they are they consistently, time and time again, show that they are unable to make a, a proper stand, and and when it really counts, again they are part of the hostile host and the same rule applies to them of um, the same rules applies to them that would apply to any hostile enemy but this discourse itself which as we saw comes in you know layers engages back and forth in examples that Muslims can relate to at the time. I mean, unfolding examples and which we can learn from if we studied these examples properly, is then crowned with a penultimate statement. And what is the crowning penultimate statement? It's like Allah comes and says, listen, in all cases, understand this critical principle. It is one thing if by mistake, without malice, without forethought, 
or malice for a Muslim to kill a Muslim. But even then, if this happens, if a Muslim kills a Muslim by mistake, even then, as I t mentioned before, you take a life, you give a life. And so why do you free a slave in, re in repentance? Because freeing a slave is like giving a life. And we, we talked about that opinion before. So, the freeing the slave and the dia and and compensation to the family of the the victim. But note, this is of course uh, ninety two, right? So, a believer cannot slay another believer unless it is by mistake. And upon the 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 um, the the believer who made the slaying or the offender is the duty of freeing a believing soul from slavery from bondage and the the day an indent indemnity to the victim's family. Okay, unless of course they don't want the indemnity. That's something else. The, that's charity and so on. Now, if, however, the believer is amongst a people who you are actually at war with, so what, what is this telling us? That tie this to what came before. So the rule is those who don't migrate, there is a presumption of hostility. Presumption of hostility, but it is not, you're not painting with a broad brush, you are being discerning. So if they are part of the war effort against you, that's when you have permission to kill them. If they are, in fact, acting like hostile hosts, acting like people who are in, actually engaged in hostilities. However, those who are not refrained from actually committing or taking hostile acts against you, you, you are not going to, they, they, you know, they, they are not a part of your polity, you're not going to go out of your way to ally yourselves, but you don't, you're not going to go and kill them. These are the believers who are belong to a people you are at war with. Belong here, and and you know we in English it say uh, belong, but it's if in Kana min min lakum min means that they are the they exist or they are amongst. A people you are uh, at, uh, hostile with, or that um, 
you are at war with, then, then still the obligation is that you free, you've taken a life, you free, you, you give a life by freeing a soul from bondage. Um, Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. And in this situation, because they are we, they they are a people we are at war with. We don't. There is no indemnity. But the rule of indemnity comes back if they are a people that we have a covenant with, meaning that we have an actual treaty with. Okay. But this is then followed وَمَنْ يَقْتُلْ وَمَنْ يَقْتُلْ مُؤْمِنًا مُتَعَمِّدًا فَجَزَاؤُهُ جَهَنَّمْ خَالِدًا فِيهَا وَغَضِبَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَلَعَنَهُ وَعَدَّ لَهُ عَذَابًا عَظِيمًا But who, whoever deliberately slays another believer Their, this is Muhammad Asad's. Their requital shall be hell herein to abide, and God will condemn them, and and will reject them, and will prepare for him an awesome suffering. So the penultimate statement is extreme, ultimately extreme caution. It's severe warning about the consequences of intentionally killing a Muslim. If it's like saying, you know, there are the circumstances of war, but keep in mind, Allah knows what is is in your heart, and if you, for any reason, ignore your awareness of the fact that this is someone who you are not permitted to kill, and you go ahead and kill them anyway, or under any circumstance, other than by mistake, a Muslim kills another Muslim, the warning is 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 remarkably severe, right? Because it has several emphasis. Jaza'u Jahannam, Khalidan Fiha. So they're in hellfire. And Allah is is angry with them. They're, they are rejected from Allah's mercy. And they're cursed. And Allah has, what awaits them is a great suffering. Allah could not have possibly emphasized how grave it is to kill another believer 
what is remarkable and what must give us pause, of course, is that throughout history, how many Muslims have killed fellow Muslims? And although Allah Although we know that the Prophet ﷺ refrained even from killing those that he knew were hypocrites in Medina simply because they claimed to be Muslim. The permission to consider Muslims as hostile enemies is in direct response to the hostility they take against or they engage in against their fellow Muslims. So even below, even living amongst the kuffar is not just an, a, a license. Go ahead and kill them. So, and this is at the time of the Prophet, where you would you could easily say, well, you know, if you if you're not going to live with the Prophet, you, you obviously. Why, why should we respect, you know, that you've, you've chosen not to be with the Prophet? But the Quran's approach is far more sophisticated than that. And comes and says, well, no, it, it, it is, you must engage in the inquiry. Are they actually engaged in hostilities against you? Because if not, even then, you are not simply allowed to say, well, they're collateral damage, well, they don't matter. Of course, one of the, the biggest fallacies that entered into, into Islamic thinking is the idea that, well, as long as you kill a fellow Muslim because you are engaged in some type of ishtihad that they are an ta'wil that or an ishtihad or an interpretation that would allow you to consider them not to be legitimate Muslims then even if you're wrong that you're forgiven this is a much bigger topic, and we have to leave it for another day. But it has had devastating effects in Islamic history. On, on the one hand, it was um, um, it was ahead of its time in that it did not consider it was a sort of a double kind, double coined, uh, or double faced coin. On the one hand, it was ahead of its time in that it didn't consider whatever the state claimed to be the absolute truth. And it recognized that the, the state could claim something to be true, but those who fought the state could have an alternative interpretation, and that alternative interpretation could arguably be credible. And this is sort of the, the relative truth of, of the legitimacy of the state. 
And that's well ahead of its time. But on the other hand, what seemed like a very um, ahead of its time concept, the, the relative truth of state power, the relative legitimacy of the state's claim to authority and claim to truth. On the other hand, it was often co-opted by the powerful, by the state, in arguing that, well, that that it is halal to kill its opponents. Um, so in other words, it, it was co-opted and say, well, you know, um, ultimately it's like, okay, take, bring it uh, into a closer example. Um, after the Egyptian revolution, after the coup in Egypt, Right, the, the military has a coup, to, they, they take power, they commit a massacre in a, in a square called Rabah, they, they massacre all these people, and there is a, the, the Mufti of Egypt, Ali Goma, who I write about in Reasoning with God, uh, who tells the military, basically, go, you know, it is halal to kill these people. And I can tell you from my knowledge of Ali Goma that his attitude is, I am right in my fatwa that it's halal to kill these people, but even if I'm wrong, Allah will forgive me because it was an ishtihad. This is what I'm talking about. That sort of idea that, well, why... This is where, where all philosophy, all ethical thought must be founded on a foundation of sanctities. If thought that becomes daring in violating sanctities. So, you know, the, if you think of the attitude of Muslims over even the sanctity of the space of the haram, why is it danger? Because yet you have compromised yet another sanctity. And when you, when you, when you violate a sanctity, then you open the door to human misjudgment and miscalculation that ultimately withers away the principle until the principle becomes meaningless. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us if you intentionally kill a Muslim all of these are the consequences. Okay, so take, take modern Islam. When I was growing up, for 10 years, 
I watched Iraqis killing Iranians and Iranians killing Iraqis. And I would, I re remember watching Iraqi TV and they would always refer to the people that were killed in the Iran-Iraq war as shuhada, martyrs. Today, how many of the Emiratis and Saudis or the Yemenis who are killing each other, and of course it's mostly Emiratis and Saudis killing Yemenis, but of course, at least for a certain, the, the, the Houthis who, you know, kill back. The, the, the decision to kill a, a Muslim is a violation of a sanctity. And so it is, it is part of restoring people who talk about decolonialism and it is not just decolonization, but it is also fixing historical mistakes. Personally, I think Hassan Farhan al-Malki and people like him are absolutely right that the that that it all began with the murder of Al Hussein, the Prophet's grandson. Because if you if you say you can murder the Prophet's grandson and murder, by the way, and we don't often talk about that, but many other companions, some of them were even Badris of the allies of Ali radiallahu anhu in the conflict with Muawiyah, and then, of course, later on, Yazid and Hussein, and we come and we say, well, you know, it was an interpretation, uh, Allahu A'lam, doesn't, uh, this doesn't um, uh, impeach their, their, their credibility, this doesn't uh, take away their legitimacy, then, then, I mean, you started at a point that is so extreme. The Prophet's grandson and some of the most honorable companions. So, of course, killing anyone else pales in comparison. So, you know, so what if you then are killing just the name? You know, yeah, they pray, but who cares? I mean, one of the very shocking things to me, I mean, you live in life and you just think that nothing will shock you anymore and then it, 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 things happen. That During the Egyptian Revolution, I saw people who were praying Fajr. And the army started shooting at these people, they, they got up for the second raqqa and the army started shooting them. And so, and this didn't happen once, it happened several times, where they would be in the midst of prayer and they would be shot at and killed while at prayer. Okay? For me, this was filmed. This was uh, the the fact that you're killing people 
in prayer. I don't care what you are going to say about their ideology, about their aqidah, their, you know, their ikhwan, their Daesh, uh, uh, their khawarij, their batik, their whatever they are. The fact that you are killing people in Salah immediately told me that the people who ordered the killing, the people who committed the killing, have nothing to do with Islam. Khalas, it's a done deal. I don't need to hear anymore. I don't need to hear anymore about whether this person is a good Muslim, this person is okay, this government is this, that you've killed people in prayer. It's like peeling, killing people in a masjid or like, like tearing down masjids. These are whole hurumat. I mean, who would have thought? In, in, we know in Sharia, you are not allowed to tear. If you can, you can fix an old masjid, then you fix it. Because this is Allah's home. This is Allah's house, sorry. And if it's Allah's house, so, and even if you destroy your masjid, you under the, the Sharia, you, you, under exceptional circumstances, if you have to tear down the masjid, then you must immediately build one in its place. And whatever spot, whatever physical place, space the masjid was built becomes sacrosanct. It's khalas, it becomes part of Allah's waqf. You, you can't... I watched, uh, and you can watch it on YouTube, in today's Egypt, 1,000 mosques torn down. And you find Egyptians who pray or fast and so on, sit there and say, yeah, but these were in violation of the code. Masjids. To me, well, if you accepted the murder of people during Salah, then it's no wonder that the next step... But, but of course, I go back and I say it all started with, the, with when we accepted the murder of Al-Hasin. Because once we've accepted that, then it became a downhill where, where our sanctities no longer mean anything. You want to restore the balance to Muslim Ummah? Go back to Surah An-Nisa. The life of a Muslim is sacrosanct. Allah tells you, <laughs> how could have Allah made it more clear? You're going to be in hell. Allah curses you. Allah is angry with you. Allah will, it's like triple emphasis on the extent to which you're a goner. And yet Muslims do it all the time. And amazingly, people who do it, you know, I would never, and you would always get the, these Iraqi soldiers, because of course I, I, couldn't, I wasn't watching Iranian TV, I was watching Iraqi TV, but Iraqi soldiers, you know, they, they, they pray and pray Jama'ah, and then, and then when, they, and when you always got an opportunity to ask someone and say, well, you know, how either they 
how could you you kill a fellow Muslim in war? The, the response you always get either, well, if I didn't do it, I would be executed, while the law of Sharia is actually quite clear. You cannot, a claim of coercion of Iqra is not valid if it means killing another Muslim or killing another human being, to be quite honest, period, any human being. You, you are under obligation to sacrifice yourself but not kill another human being. That's Sharia, because why is your life better than another's? The second, which still is even worse today, which you would hear if, if it was, of course, a lot of the soldiers, by the way, were Shia, but some of them were, you know, at least half of them were Sunni. They say, well, because they're, well, they're, they're not really Muslims or Shia. This is the aqidah takfir, this ideological that is not is not based on anything other than asabiyah, uh, um, other than ideological bias. Even the extreme, they say, "Oh well, they, they what all Sunnis always say, well, they curse the Sahaba, even if they curse the Sahaba." Okay, even if that allows you to kill them, even if I mean, during the Amawid era, for 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 decades, an Imam Ali was cursed on the Manabir, you know, was constantly cursed in the khutbas. The Umayyad orders, the cursing of Imam Ali was a standard thing. And the, the, the whole awful practice of cursing back and forth, it, it arose from that. But anyway, does this mean that those who cursed Imam Ali, that then you could kill them? I mean, that was the that was the logic of the Khawarish. We need to be re-anchored in the Quran because if Allah tells us you are cast away from Allah's mercy, Allah will curse you, Allah is angry, and yet we collectively as a people continue to witness all over the Muslim world, a Muslim killing a fellow Muslim. This is like what we've done with Jerusalem. It is, the, the, you know, a sign of such an ailment that we should pause and rethink everything. Okay. So we get to the to the penultimate statement. This warning. Keep in mind, killing a Muslim by accident, qata means an accident, is one thing. But if there is intentionality involved, and other than what. I'll, 
Allah teaches you about a Muslim that is basically self-defense. You are, you've defended against yourself. You, you defended yourself against a, someone who says they're Muslim, but actually is engaged in hostility against you. Uh, but, and, and within the context of this, um, Allah then provides you with this with this severe warning that be very careful because the consequences are extremely severe if you intentionally kill a Muslim without just cause, without legal cause. Okay, then, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِذَا ضَرَبْتُمْ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ فَتَبَيَّنُوا وَلَا تَقُولُ لِمَنْ أَلْقَى لمن ألقى إليكم السلام لمن ألقى إليكم السلام لست مؤمنا تبتغون عرض الحياة الدنيا فعند الله مغانم كثيرة كذلك كنتم من قبل فمن, فمن الله عليكم فتبينوا إن الله كان بما تعملون خبيرا so, um, السلام والسلام so this then what this is followed by well before I get to that well let me finish the thought and then I'll come back to to, to it okay so that be cautious that you are not like the way you were in pre-Islamic times, where you are at liberty to consider who you act violently towards solely on the basis of your self-interest. So whether someone deals with you peacefully or not, the only measure of whether you can act violently towards them was things like which clan they belong to, which tribe they belong to. In other words, in other words purely material um, uh, matters of pragmatic self-interest. Um, this is a completely different paradigm. Those, and Muhammad Asa translates it as anyone who offers you the greeting of peace. Someone who um Someone, and in this context, it's not a greeting of peace, it's, it's, it's Islam. It's, it's someone who, in fact, takes the shahada, or someone who is, in fact, a Muslim. Of course, this, this makes, it follows the warning about killing a Muslim 
intentionally, that that it is a grave sin to come and say, well, I'm going to discount the Shahada for other reasons. This is a, this is a completely different paradigm. Now, let me come back to this because I, I forgot a few things I think will clarify why, why I've hesitated a bit. Okay, so go back to verse 90. Um, when, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that you will find ستجدون آخرين يريدون أن يأمنوكم ويأمنوا قومهم كل ما ردوا إلى الفتنة وركسوا فيها that you will find others who would like to be safe, who have no ill will, will towards you, but at the same time, uh, they don't want to fight their own people, uh, um, and so on. There are several reports about context or the situation for that these verses were addressing. Um, some of the most famous, the, the reports that said that these that these verses ninety, uh, sorry eighty nine and ninety, were revealed about a group a, a Bani Mudlish. Um, I'll, I'll sum up the, the, the heart of the report, is that a tribe called Bani Mudlij um, had heard that the Prophet um, was thinking of sending a, the, Bani Muldish has had were for a long time uh, had been allies of Quraysh, and that the Prophet was going to send a military expedition um, towards them, and Bani Muldish then went and talked to a man called Suraka, who was actually a convert from Bani Mudlish himself, and told um, Suraka that, can you talk to the Prophet because we, we want Muwada. We, we don't want to be... Uh, uh, we, we don't want hostility with, with Quraysh. At the same time, we do not want to fight Muslims. We don't want hostility with Muslims. And so, can you talk to the Prophet that for, to, to sign some type of agreement of basically non-hostility, that we are not with you, we're not against you. And that Suraka went and talked to the Prophet and um, he, he said, you know, Bani Mudlij, they're, they're a, a, a nice people. Um, uh, and the Prophet agreed to sign an agreement with them. 
of non-hostility. So they're neither for nor against. Um, there are other reports that, no, they said it wasn't revealed about Bani Mudlij, it was revealed about Khuza'a. There are other reports that said, no, it was revealed about, about Banu Bakr uh, bin Zaid. Um, and others. There, there, there's a report that says, uh, no, it was revealed about Hilal ibn Awaymar um, al-Salami. Make a long story short, all of these examples, when you look into them, with substantial variations of the theme, what they involved were a people that were caught in between, really not wanting to be at war with Muslims, but at the same time, for was was substantial. You know, I'm not saying they're all the same because there were some major differences. With some major differences, at the same time, not wanting to, for a variety of reasons, to be at war with those who are hostile to Muslims. And in all of these examples the Prophet ﷺ gave them a way out if the Prophet knew that they were sincere about their um, non-enmity. And subhanAllah, in nearly all of these examples, eventually they convert to Islam uh, be because of their good relations with Muslims. Um, okay. If you notice 91, where, this, where it talks about those who keep, you know, they tell you we don't fight you, but they, they keep falling prey to, to fitna and so on. I've got to tell you um, um, there is a report that this was revealed about tribes of Assad and Ghatafan. Um, both these tribes are very odd. I mean, when you the, the reports. Um, uh, anyway, uh, many members of Assad and Ghatafan would say they either say to Muslims, "We've converted. We've taken the shahada." But time and time again, they would show up on military expedition, expeditions with Quraysh against Muslims. There are other interesting narratives that say um, that 
members of Assad al-Ghatafan would assure Muslims that they converted, but they had an inside joke that apparently was very funny to them, that after they would tell Muslims that we became Muslim, they would ask each other, okay, what do you believe in? Now, now that you're a Muslim, what is it that you believe in? And one of them then would point to um, a monkey or a scorpion or a snake or a spider and say, this is what I believe in. Amantu bil-qird, amantu bil-khunfisa, amantu bil-aqrab. And then they would crack up laughing. So it was apparently a very funny inside joke for them. Um, that they, they, this sort of double talk. Yeah, I, I, I believe Allah, but for me, Allah is the spider, is the, um, now, is it, I have this particular report, although it's very interesting and very curious, especially the, the character of Asad al-Ghatafan is generally very interesting. Anyway, with that occasion for revelation, I, I don't think so, because it's, Look at the ayah. It's talking about urkusu fil fitna. People who, who are, uh, they make assurances, but ultimately take the wrong decision. It's not talking about people who are like these these jokers who are liars and they know they're liars and they're you know they they pretend to believe, but they're actually playing games with Muslims. Um. Anyway, okay. Um, another report that I, just for sake of completion, um, there are various traditions about, and I know for contemporary Muslims, the name of tribes mean nothing. But again, I mean, it's not the names of tribes. It is the particulars, the, the details, the micro details of what was happening with each tribe that becomes important. But anyway, so there are also reports about a tribe called Bani Dumrah. Um, also reports about another tribe called Eshja. Um, Eshja is a tribe that lived close to Bani Dumra. And um, Eshja had Bani Dumra was allied with Muslims. Ajja was hit by a drought. And that the, the tribe of Ajja, upon being hit by a, by a drought, um, they wanted a solution for their financial woes or their economic woes. And they thought, well, The way we, we, we should solve this problem is by invading Bani Dumra. 
raiding Banu Dumrah, in other words, acting like highway robbers, pillaging what Banu Dumrah has. Um, however, and, and Banu Dumrah got wind that Ezra was preparing to do this. So Banu Dumrah sent a message to Ezra that remember we are allied to Muslims and if you attack us then you don't have then you're going to have to deal with us and deal with Muslims as well as well whereupon Ezra hearing of this he said you know Muslims have a reputation of being fierce fighters and we can't handle fighting Muslims because their reputation was, was getting around. So they rushed to the Prophet and said, we want a treaty with you. By, so among the, the, the terms of the treaty is that we will not attack Banu Dumrah, but we want basically a, a peace with Muslims. Several Muslims were, were of the opinion that we shouldn't sign a, a treaty with Ashja because the only reason that Ashja wants to sign a treaty with us is that they're scared. They're scared that now that it was leaked that they had ill intentions against Banu Dumrah, so they, they, they're motivated by their own self-interest. And that reportedly, the set of revelations, after the set of revelations, the Prophet did sign a treaty with Ezra. Um, that, in fact, you know, the fact that they have now recalculated their, their situation and are, don't want to fight you be open to making peace. All of these historical examples, I mean, they, they, if, uh, uh, is that an occasion for a revelation? Again, I have very strong doubts that that's really, I mean, that's why it was revealed. But where these collectively various historical examples that Muslims understood that these revelations address these various historical examples for them to use their intellect and their conscience to figure out what is the right course of action? Absolutely. And it is, it shows you the discernment of, and, and, and the critical point is that it wasn't about Muslims just simply waging war against any, the Quran went to great lengths to tell Muslims, if they don't want war with you, don't go to war with them, even if they were not Muslim. And that point is emphasized again um, in Surah Tunisa. Another point about, especially about um, 93. Um, 
well, 93 and 94. Okay, so there's a famous report that just, I mean, uh, just in case you haven't already heard it, I should uh, mention it. It's, it's a very, like the most famous report about 94 particular, particularly that that there is a battle that one of the Sahaba is about to kill someone during battle. The person yells, Ashhadu anna la ilaha illallah, and to you know, as as they're about to be struck, and that the Sahabi goes ahead and kills them anyway. And that when the Prophet ﷺ hears about this, he is extremely upset and he says what became a very famous, فَكَيْفَ بِلَا إِلَهَ Allah. When the, the, the Sahabi says, you know, the only reason this man took the shahada is because I was just about to kill him. And the Prophet ﷺ then tells him, you know, have you looked into his heart, although I mean, all the the objective conditions would seem to indicate that this man just yelled out the shahada because he was scared of death. But the Prophet tells him, you know, what are you going to do with la ilaha illallah? Basically, that the, the minute he said it, they, they became um, protected. This is a very famous report that, uh, I mean, it, all the Muslims say it all the time, they teach it all the time, but subhanAllah, they still kill each other despite Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. Um, there is a famous hadith that the Prophet um, recited 93 and said that I, for whatever reason, Muslims have, I don't see Muslims um, say, لو أن رجلا قتل بالمشرق وآخر رضى بالمغرب لأشرك في دمه that if a man is killed in the east and a man, another man in the west رضى بدمه means that they didn't object at, at a minimum in their heart. They weren't offended by the killing all the way in the West. Then they are, then they are a ushrika fi dama, then they bear part of the responsibility. So in other words, if, if there is an unlawful killing and you acquiesce to various de degrees, you know, the worst degree is where you actually help the killing or you take part of the killing, but even acquiescing, not condemning it, you become a participant in this blood. Uh, there's another hadith where the Prophet ﷺ is reported to have said that man a'ana ala qatli muslim وَلَوْ بِشَطْرِ كَلِمَةِ That if a Muslim helps in the murder of another Muslim, even 
by utter with an, with part of a word. A version of this hadith says, "Ayasa min rahmatillah." Then they're they're cast out of Allah's mercy altogether. Another version says, "Ushrika fi dami," that they be, they become part of. Uh, you, they bear responsibility for their blood. There are many of these hadiths, by the way, and they they all. The Prophet ﷺ is underscoring, I mean, that if you take all of this, these ahadiths and you you take the meaning of these ahadiths, they definitely reach the level of tawatur. Cumulatively, it is beyond doubt that the Prophet ﷺ taught that you are you bear part of the moral responsibility if you are at a minimum not offended by the murder of a Muslim. So, put it very bluntly, for these Muslims today that go on with life not troubled, I mean, there was a recent incident where um, uh, all these uh, civilians were were were, were slaughtered um, in a bus in Yemen. There were a lot of them children, and it is amazing. I mean, and we saw this also in Iraq, uh, uh, and we saw this in Afghanistan, and now in, in Yemen, and where you just found the the ama- the level to degree to which Muslims will just very easily say, "Oh well, you know." Um, it was an accident. They, they, you know, they were intended to kill other Muslims, but they missed and they killed instead this bus full of children. You're complicit in this blood. The, the, you know, same thing where, where, the, where those Muslims who watched other Muslims being killed while praying literally as they got up to do the second rakah they were shot and it was on camera and and somehow it just doesn't affect them it doesn't alter their their attitude about anything or they can watch the massacre of rabah or the massacres in syria or the and it doesn't it doesn't seem to to shake their core I mean, they're, they're more shaken. Subhanallah, I mean, the, the, um, someone recently told me about someone who's say, calling my tafsir of the Quran, um, what was it? Um, the, the guy who's saying that it's Amer- Amer- appeasing the West or... I mean, what do you say? People who are not troubled by the spilling of Muslim blood and get all worked up about I don't know. Very strange. Okay. What time is it? Let's take a three-minute break, and we'll continue, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim.
يا أيها الذين أمنوا إذا ضربتم في سبيل الله فتبينوا ولا تقولوا لمن ألقى إليكم سلم لست من أن تبتغون عرض الحياة الدنيا So this is 94 that if you go forth in war be careful um, with the warning now notice the, this this warning that تبتغون عرض الحياة الدنيا فعند الله مغانم كثيرة كذلك كنتم من قبل that في سبيل الله going to war for Allah's sake your intention has to be pure and clear that it is for Allah's sake not for any other's sake If your intention is is something that has to do with the dunya, then that's not fi sabilillah. Because we fudge this all the time. We 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 and again going back to to the traditions that were generated by apologists for power. Those who wanted to fudge the jihad, and so you know, told you, oh well, you know, if you fight um, for de- defending your property, you're a martyr. If you if you die in a in the plague, you're a martyr. If you do this, you're a martyr. If you that's a that's another very big topic the, the the attempt to basically because the the state was involved in wars that it knew were were not wars wars about Allah or about Islam or it, it, that there, there were wars about material wealth and material power and There and this is again. It's a this is a very big. There was attempts by the state to support and to to push scholars who would say, well, you know, it, your intention to to in serving Allah, it doesn't need to be completely pure. You know, there's there there could you could have other motives as well. That's not the Islam of the Quran. The Islam of the Quran is quite quite clear. If you, it, there is a war for Allah's sake, where your motives is that I am serving Allah's religion. I am serving Allah's cause. Now. And Allah warns us, be careful, because if what is mixed with that is motives such as profit, such as gain, such as pride, uh, you know, vengeance, etc., etc., then that's on you. Okay. Then... Um, 95. لا يستوي القاعدون 
من المؤمنين غير أولي الضرر والمجاهدون في سبيل الله بأموالهم وأنفسهم فضل الله المجاهدين بأموالهم وأنفسهم على القاعدين درجة وكلا وعد الله الحسنى وفضل الله المجاهدين على القاعدين أجرا عظيما Okay, so first, لا يستوي قاعدون من المؤمنين غير أولي الضرر. It's dealing again with 95 is dealing with actual challenges that the early Muslim community confronted. We often learn the seerah as if people would take the shahada, people would become sahaba, and people were just from there on ideal Muslims. That, that's not the historical reality. The historical reality were that there were people who converted. But for them, the sacrifice of actually fighting in person um, was, was something they, they couldn't get themselves to do. And Subhanallah. I mean, the, what you would what you would expect from human institutions is that the Quran would come and say, "Well, those amongst you in Medina that don't respond to the call of war, um, you know, they're lower than low, and they should be executed or should be banished or whatever." The Quran doesn't do that. Doesn't do that. But it comes and very carefully says, "Let let's be." They, why you are required to treat them all as Muslims because they say they're Muslims. However, those who actually go out and make the sacrifice of fighting in Allah's cause, these people cannot be equated and they are not equal in Allah's eyes or even in your moral appraiser, appraisal to those who make excuses and sit passively. And there were a group that said, well, we'll we're, we're going to support you financially, but we're not going to join the war effort ourselves. And as the ayah makes clear that that those, the Mujahideen, those who actually fight, commit themselves to volunteering, waging war, making that sacrifice, are higher in degree. The thing that always struck me about this ayah, though, is that, look at the language itself. فضل الله المجاهدين بأموالهم وأنفسهم على قاعدين درجة. Although God promised, uh, no, 
God has exalted those who strive hard with their possessions and their lives. Muhammad Asad translates it as far above those who remain passive. Ala qa'idina daraja is actually more circumspect than high above. It tells you they're above them, but it doesn't tell you how much above them. This is typical of the measured Quranic narrative. In my view, Allah is, is well aware that well, there are those who only sacrifice financially because they're cowardly, but there are those who are unable. Or Allah knows that for whatever reason, they have a valid excuse. And so Allah is, is not... It's, Allah doesn't deprecate a group completely so that they become demonized in society. But Allah teaches you that there are that still they're not all equal. Levels of sacrifice must be recognized. Okay. And this so this is 96 um, that uh, first uh, that um, you know they, they all have their rewards but of course Allah recognizes the greater the sacrifice the higher your status morally and Islamically and that um, the potential is, depending on the levels of sacrifice, is higher degrees of, or variable degrees of mercy and forgiveness. Okay. Then we come to this most, Probably the most famous ayah of Surah An-Nisa. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ تَوَفَّاهُمُ الْمَلَائِكَةُ ظَالِمِي أَنفُسِهِمْ قَالُوا فِيمَا كُنْتُمْ قَالُوا كُنَّا مُسْتَضَافِينَ فِي الْأَرْضِ قَالُوا أَلَمْ تَكُنْ أَرْضُ اللَّهِ وَاسِعَةٌ فَتُهَاجِرُوا فِيهَا فَأُدَائِكَ مَأْوَاهُمْ جَهَنَّمْ وَسَاءَتْ مَصِيرًا إِلَّا الْمُسْتَضَافِينَ مِنَ الرِّجَالِ وَالنِّسَاءِ وَالْوِلْدَانِ لَا يَسْتَطِيعُونَ حِيلَةً وَلَا يَهْتَدُونَ سَبِيلًا فَأُولَٰئِكَ عَصَى اللَّهُ أَن يَعْفُ عَنْهُمْ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَفُوًّا غَفُورًا وَمَن يُهَاجِرْ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ يَجِدْ فِي الْأَرْضِ مُرَاغَمًا كَثِيرًا وَسَعَةً وَمَن يَخْرُجْ مِن بَيْتِهِ مُهَاجِرًا إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ ثُمَّ يُدْرِكُهُ الْمَوْتُ فَقَدْ وَقَعَ أَجْرُهُ عَلَى اللَّهِ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ غَفُورًا رَّحِيمًا So this is now um, 97 to 100. So then after we've gone through these, these sort of, if you will, 
laws of hostility and war and warning, and then with the penultimate statement warning us against killing a fellow Muslim. But we come to a, a, a subtle moral point, and it's astounding in its subtlety. There will come a point, aside from the laws of jurisdiction and war and hostility and the, 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 the immunity of shahada, that you take the shahada so that you protect your life vis-a-vis -vis these, these um, if you will, uh, uh, earthly affairs of warfare. But there is a more fundamental issue, more basic moral issue that all Muslims must ponder and think about. At the point of death, angels come and fima kuntum. It's this rhetorical question of, it's like, Fima Kuntum, like, what put you in this condition? What's up with your circumstance? Why are the angels asking this? Because they were Dhalimi and Fusihim. They were unjust towards themselves. Now, you pause and you say unjust towards themselves in what way? Because in this area, it invites you to reflect upon those who allowed themselves to become morally, ethically compromised. Why did they allow themselves to become morally and ethically compromised? It's not that they intended to be morally and ethically compromised, but the reason that they became ethically and morally compromised is because they allowed themselves to be disempowered. What is power? What is power? Power is the ability to exercise your free will so that you can freely act upon your free will. Disempowerment is for whatever situation, whatever the circumstances are, that you are either denied your free will, so because of your circumstances, you are brainwashed, or you are not properly educated, or you are not properly made aware and conscious, or you do have consciousness and awareness, 
but you can't act upon it. So, that question that puts us against this moral dilemma, what's wrong with you? Well, what's wrong with me is that I was disempowered. I couldn't do the right thing or couldn't think the right thing because I fell in disempowerment. So the, the, the retort to that is, well, wasn't God's earth wide enough for you to forsake, to escape the domain of evil. Now, I, I could go on about how, like what the Sufis said about, about this area, what this, but let's, let's, because we're in the interests of time and interests of just getting the, this methodology, this tafsir, that you're presented with a a paradigm. Couldn't you, even if you could not fight off your disempowerment by direct confrontation, couldn't you have at least escaped this disempowerment? Now, all of this, what makes it particularly troubling is the consequences. What are the consequences? That the consequences is that then the fate of these people is hell and how evil the the journeys end, as Muhammad Asad puts it. وَسَاءَتْ مَصِيرًا Meaning that their journey culminates in hellfire. This is deeply troubling because it is not that I was disempowered so because I was disempowered it acts as a mitigating factor, but if I am complicit in my disempowerment, then in fact, because here we're not talking about people who are not believers, we're talking about people who are believers, mu'mineen, that in fact, the end result is horrible. And except the men, women, and children, إِلَّا الْمُسْتَضَعَفِينَ مِنَ الرِّجَالِ وَالنِّسَاءِ وَالْوُلْدَانِ لَا يَسْتَطِيعُونَ حِيلَةً وَلَا يَهْتَدُونَ سَبِيلًا who except men women and children who are truly disempowered, 
this is is they truly don't have a choice. So Allah presents us with a challenge. It is not that Allah is saying, well, if migration is closed, so because some people understood this as saying, well, I find that I'm disempowered, so I migrate, and if I can't migrate, then I have an excuse. The, the issue is fima kuntum. Why are you in this morally compromised position? I am in this morally compromised position because I have I am disempowered. So the 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 issue is why are you in this situation of disempowerment? What could you have done? And migration here is an example born out of the historical circumstance, but not limited. So what could you have done to either challenge directly disempowerment or escape this disempowerment? Because if Allah knows that you were not really as disempowered as you claim to have been, then you're in trouble. So this, as a historical matter, we know about people like um, um, Al-Ayyash bin Abi Rabi'ah or, uh, what was his name? Um, Salama ibn Hisham. Salama ibn Hisham, who were the Prophet ﷺ would often in his dua pray that they are that Allah gives them a way out of their oppression in Mecca. They had converted to Islam, but individuals like Salama ibn Hisham were from the Prophet's prayer, we know that they were. Um, and someone like Al um, Ayyash would, after, would, in several traditions, he would say, "Kuntu ana wa ummi min al mustadafina fi Mecca." That I and my and my mother were among the disempowered. So Al Ayyash would often say that I I fell, and the Prophet ﷺ would recognize that I fell under this this category. So we know that among the Muslims that lived under the sovereignty of Meccans were those who were truly disempowered. But there were among the Muslims who lived under the sovereignty of Meccans who did not wage war against their fellow Muslims in Medina who Muslims in Medina were not allowed to kill, but yet, with Allah, they were in trouble. Because Allah knows that they were not truly disempowered. And so, part of the reaction to this ayah, part of the, it's, it, look at the, like the subtlety of teaching you that 
their affairs with Allah is one thing, and that is addressed to their conscience, to ask themselves. So some of them, some people reacted to this revelation by taking a very deep look within and said, you know, when all said and done, I'm just not willing to make the sacrifice. And they sold everything and made the sacrifice and came back to Mecca. So when it came, yeah, they, 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 the Muslims were told not to kill them. So, okay, they had gone to Muslims and met with the Prophet and said, well, you know, we bear you no ill will and we're going to, and the Prophet said, okay, okay, fine. But the fact that the Prophet said, okay, fine, we're, we don't consider you a, an enemy, a hostile, didn't let them off the hook with Allah. This is the, 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 the you know, the, the remarkable thing about the Quranic revelation. It didn't let them off the hook with Allah. And after this is revealed, they have to take a deep introspective look. And a few of them did, in fact, liquidate everything and come back and said, you know, we, we have to be honest. So it is not the, 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 the Quran itself teaches us that the formalities of the law is one thing. The, the, the truth of ethics and morality is another thing. Now, who can answer if you were truly disempowered? If you true, in other words, if you truly had an excuse. At this level, only Allah and you. No other human being can really know all the details that can go into whether someone truly had a choice or not. But you have to confront yourself with that conscientious. Now, note at the same time, because this is something that I went through in my own life, there is a huge difference between those who migrate. There are people who were conf confronted persecution in Iran, persecution in Saudi, uh, persecution in Egypt, and they decided to escape this persecution often by coming to the West with what is in their heart, Allah, I am leaving my homeland. I am going away from my homeland to serve you. There is a huge difference between that and between a Muslim who basically I want better opportunities in life, so I'm going to try to immigrate to the U.S. or immigrate to wherever. And, you know, now that I'm in the U.S., um, you know, identity politics. So now let's get involved in Islam. A, a huge difference. 
we don't teach that moral difference in the way we try to build moral discernment and ethical discernment amongst our people. We, we don't teach our kids and children, you know, there's a huge difference between someone who is truly fi sabilillah, someone who is dedicated to the cause, not towards serving the cause while making a living, but serving the cause. What has confused the picture is precisely what I mentioned, that in early Islam, the state played a huge role in trying in, in, in trying to obfuscate the, 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 the clarity of the moral vision for purposes that serve the state. And so, you know, a lot of this material that about, well, you know, it, it, um, you know, jihad fi sabilillah doesn't need to be very pure. It could be mixed with earthly reasons. It's all, okay, even, but this is another topic, even the whole thing about that if you go to hajj, all your sins are, are forgiven, even that was a politically motivated tradition. That, you know, if you read this surah, then that erases all these sins. If you go to Umrah, then it erases your sins from one Umrah to another. If you go to Hajj, then it erases all your sins. You know, all these sort of automatic um, vending machine mentality solutions, which is not consistent with the Quran. The Quran doesn't give you any vending machine solutions. You find that in the hadith, and the and hadith that is a clear product of the authoritarian state. The the transmitters of the hadith of these hadith were individuals specific, although they are recognized as thiqat and so on, and Bukhari accepted them, and Muslim accepted them, etc., etc. But they are, they were transmitters of hadith who lived and died in the service of the Amayyads, of the Amawiyin. And the, it is remarkable the extent to which the, the the, the, I mean, it's not that Abbasids were any better, just whoever is in power. They, they want a theology where, by which they can tell their soldiers, yeah, go kill, you know, these rebels, execute this pious person, and don't worry about it, just go to Hajj, it will all be erased, no problem. So that's the Islam they fabricated. And we like parrots, continue just teaching the same thing over and over and over. And that is because the weakness of Islamic sciences. I mean, how many Muslims know anything about Rijal al-Bukhari or Rijal Muslim and what their political alliances were? 
maybe a handful of Muslims on the face of this earth? Maybe? It's, it's a monumental disaster because it's not consistent with the Quran that Allah revealed. And we become like, subhanAllah, Surah An-Nisa itself will warn us again about following in the footsteps of Jews and Christians, which we most certainly did. So, um, oh, wait, wait, wait. yeah. So, except that those who are truly disempowered, Allah knows, and here disempowered. You could even take this as as who truly has an excuse. Because when I see the way that a lot of Muslims are brainwashed by the, their, their self-induced ignorance. I mean, I I've, yesterday I was reading a, a, a transcript of something. And it was an argument between... Believe it or not, a graduate of Azhar, graduate of Azhar, about a hadith. And it, these are two graduates of Azhar. And they're, they're saying, one of them is saying to the other, where did you get this material about riwayat um, al-hadith, about where the... And his response to him was, Google. It's, I found it on Google. And so the other man was saying, are you, but I, I think that's wrong. And he said, are you saying Google is wrong? Wallahi Azim, I'm not exaggerating. Two graduates from Azhar, I don't allow my students to cite to Google research in papers. Two graduates of Azhar, their authority has become Sheikh Google. Yani, and it, it, this is this is poorness of educa- educational institutions. I, I mean, you know, I'm 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 I've learned the hard way. When I was younger, I used to go out of my way to help. I would get these letters from people from Pakistan or people from Iran. They would say. You know, I, I got my doctorate in this, in uh, Sharia or in theology or whatever. Can I, I just want to do postgraduate studies. And, and I would go out of my way. I even drove, I've lost some really good assistants over the years and aides because I would put them to, to do really hard work to help these people come and do postgraduate studies. I would be shocked at the illiteracy of these so-called doctoral people who have doctorates. They're illiterate. They're they're intellectually illiterate. So, I mean, I I no longer, you know, and and they also let some bruising experience, but what are we going to tell Allah when Allah says, I've given you money, how much of this money was spent in 
building the type of intellect that can respond to istidaf. You see, an ignorant person, a huge part of disempowerment is when the disempowered doesn't recognize they're disempowered. You could be oppressed, and you don't know you're oppressed. Why? Because you're ignorant. Look, I mean, I, I don't want to feed into a racist thing, but I, 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 I have to, I mean, we have to be honest with ourselves. I was watching all the people who are going volunteering to go fight against the Russians in Ukraine. And I was watching some of the interviews. These are people from Britain, from France, from you know, various European countries. And they're explaining why, including one guy who's 60 years old. May Allah forgive me, but yeah, this is why no no rich person will ever uh, come to our, okay, but I I have to say the truth. So I was watching the way they were explaining their decision to sign up to go fight against the Russians. And then I was comparing in my memory when there were several programs about people volunteering from dairy, some people in some parts of the Muslim world to go fight, to join the Iraqi army to fight against the incoming American invasion. And I'll never forget that the volunteers that were joining the Iraqi army, they were holding guns and, you know, you know, basically yelling. And their entire discourse was all hinged around the great leader Saddam. The people volunteering to to fight with Ukraine against the Russians didn't mention the leader of the Ukrainians. It didn't even, it was clear they don't care about the leader of the Ukrainians. They, they, They could articulate a set of principles as to why they believed that it is the right thing to do is to fight against the Russians. I compared that to what I very distinctly remember, the people who volunteered to defend Iraq. And it was, if everyone knew that if you don't praise Saddam, if you don't toot the horn of Saddam, you could find yourself, although an an American invasion was imminent, you could find yourself thrown in prison. This is the difference between what despotism creates and what relatively less despotic system creates. The Prophet ﷺ, and you see this in the Quran, the way the reason Muslims under the leadership of the Prophet conquered the world is that the Prophet ﷺ taught them to be dignified human beings. 
empowered within. Sadly, and especially after colonial and through the, the because you can't you can't ignore the effects of external invasion and domination. You cannot. You Muslims learned to be to to adopt all the mannerisms, all the ethics, all the psychology of a dominated and subjugated and broken and disempowered people. This is why this is why the the Russians are stuck. Did you do you remember how quickly Baghdad folded? It's not the absence of brave people. It is because as long as it was the official Iraqi army in confrontation, the, the, the human being who doesn't have a sense of their self-worth is, is a human being that you can... They, they, they don't even have sufficient consciousness of their own oppression. That's precisely why our real challenge is education and investment in the, our educational institutions and the reclam- reclaiming Islamic sciences. I, I'm over all the Orientalist scholarship because they're distractions. There's, I, there's one book published by Palgrave about, it was a PhD dissertation, about the Nawasib in the Islamic tradition. But, of course, written by someone that wants to appease Orientalist scholars, it becomes about, you know, maybe Muslims never really, it becomes typically Orientalist stuff that Muslims never really cared about Ali and that, Later on, in in the third century Hijra, Muslims invent Ali that never existed in history, who's important. You know, typical Orientalist nonsense. But I know that many of you don't know who the Nawasib were. The Nawasib were people who basically were Umayyad apologists. And in order to defend the Umayyads and their power institutions, they demonized Ali and Ali al-Bayt. So, but it is, the scholarship on the effect of despotism upon our history cannot be undertaken by Orientalist scholars. It has to be undertaken by Muslim scholars who are working independent from Orientalist institutions. And until we have the type of educational institutions that ask the hard questions, I I know I will go to my grave preaching the, the, the cause of education, and I will never see it in my lifetime, but, you know, what can we say? Okay, what time is it? Okay, I'm gonna just. We can't stop here because it it would be. Okay, look. 
This is now a, a 100, okay? So whoever migrates in Allah's cause, no. يجد في الأرض مراغما كثيرا وسعة وما يخرج من بيته مهاجرا إلى الله ورسوله ثم يدرك الموت فقد وقع أجره على الله وكان الله غفورا رحيما This is again among the most Oh my God So pause مراغما This comes from the derived from the word ragam. Ragam literally is dust. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, okay, understand that those who will in fact migrate, make the sacrifice and travel, migrate slash travel, become displaced slash dispossessed for what? For Allah and his prophet. What is to become? What can they expect? First, the expression muraghaman, Allah knows what that means is Hardship and loneliness. The path of virtue is lonely. You see, it's very hard because those who want to work, walk the path of virtue, want to wake up from disempowerment, want to resist their istidaf and want to say no, no, I can't I, I worship Allah and worshiping Allah means a certain has a meaning anchored in dignity and in autonomy and in integrity and all of that and so now I will migrate to Allah and his prophet and that migration, which means make all the sacrifices consistent with that commitment, that expression, muragham, is remarkable because Allah says, it's as if Allah is saying, I know that that path the, you will find the immediate thing that you will find is a great deal of loneliness. You will feel isolated and alone. But then, and, and, and says, Muraghaman Kathira, it's not just that it is loneliness, but a great deal of loneliness, kathira. Great, it, it is hard, it is bumpy. Wasi'ah, 
and but at the same time ease remember when Allah told us in the Meccan revelation with hardship comes ease so Allah is saying it, it is a passive sacrifice it is a passive loneliness but Allah is with you and with because Allah is with you there will come ease if you persevere and as to those of course you know if in the books of tafsir they tell you various occasions for revelation about this but that as to those who might start migrating or proceed to migrate for in, in Allah's path and in, uh, to Allah and his prophet and they die in the way then their reward with Allah why I pause at this is that especially Sufi Tafsir but not limited to Sufi Tafsir because you find it also in Razi and 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 um the Zamakhshari, the Mu'tazili, and so on. That this ayah, superficially it applied to specific individuals who, after have made the decision, initially they made the decision not to migrate. And then finally, after a certain amount of, they said, Okay, we're making the ultimate sacrifice and we're sacrificing everything and we're going to migrate. And they actually get ill and die in the trip from where they were close to Mecca to Medina. Whether that was an occasion for revelation, and I have no reason to suspect the, the veracity of that incident historically, but whether it was an occasion for revelation is beside the point because the way that the hijrah to Allah and the Prophet is not a simple physical journey it is an entire moral journey and Allah knows that there will be many situations that what this journey entails is death. Allah is preparing us for ultimately that sometimes the, the price you're going to pay is your life. Then fear of death shouldn't be an excuse for seeking liberation from your disempowerment. If in fact you die, then your reward is with Allah. The path itself, the journey itself, is a lonely one, and Allah knows this, and knows the level of hardship. But ultimately the question is when your soul is received by the angels who receive your soul. Are you going to be able to withstand the question as to what 
whatever was wrong with your circumstances, are you going to be able to say, yes, I've done something about it. And what I've done was to the best of my ability, and Allah knows my true motives and intentions. You know, this is not an invitation for some, you know, I, I was always intrigued by, when I was much younger, I was always intrigued by my um, um, people my, my age who were, uh, all, you know, communists and revolutionaries. They were always like in a state of constant revolution. They wanted to burn everything, destroy everything, as if that's the cool thing, as if that's the, the, the hard thing. That's very easy to be just a radical who wants to destroy everything. What's much harder is to be a Quranic revolutionary. A Quranic revolutionary, a revolutionary with great moral discernment and great moral distinction. One wrong doesn't make another right. To have a keen sense of your own dignity and liberation, but it cannot be attained at the expense of the indignity and oppression towards others. And this was always, you know, the, 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 and subhanAllah, that the surah in the Quran that is named after women is the surah of revolution and liberation. Coincidence? Okay, alhamdulillah, let's stop here and Hopefully, we're getting to the point where we, we can go faster with Surah Al-Nisa because... Uh, Every time you say you want to go faster, I want to have a revolution. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I know Sharif will join me. You can't go, you can't go faster. It's okay. This, uh, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah, this was an amazing session. Um, even though we didn't make a lot of progress in terms of verses, I think in terms of, of meaning and depth, it was absolutely incredible. Oh, I forgot my phone. Joe, can you remind me what was the name of the khutbah that you told me to mention? Divinity, Justice, and Muslims Murdering Muslims. This was a, a khutbah that the sheikh gave in May of 2019, I believe. That um, where he really focused on verses 92 and 93 of Surah Al-Nisa. So I just wanted to call it out. You guys can find it on on YouTube. But it's a um, Joe reminded me that he talked um, about these verses and also about the whole idea of um, a moral migration. And th this um, this session was particularly powerful for me as a convert because even the idea of migration, even if you're not physically migrating. The idea of migrating from home is very significant because as a convert, you leave everything that is familiar to you in your home, mentally, emotionally, you know, in addition to maybe physically, maybe not. But um, what it requires is, is such conviction. And I think um, 
it is so true. Like this idea of this path is is hard and lonely, um, and so difficult. Because certainly, um, I think people know when I converted, I you know was encountered such hardship with my family that I was really estranged from them for eight years. Um, and it was a really difficult time. It was very lonely. It was very hard. Um, but at the same time, um, in my particular case, it's like Allah knew that that was exactly what I needed to make that break from everything that I considered home um, and have enough time and space to, um, to really get my bearings. Um, and I'm sure that this is the same situation with many people who are trying to make that moral migration to something different and something new. Um, and... Uh, you know, so, and I think that that's what you talk about in terms of not just the physical migration, but the, the, the moral migration. And, and in many ways, although it was difficult, it did come with ease because you felt it forced you to actually then develop your relationship with God and it, with God becoming your center and your anchor in a very, for, you know, I mean, in, in, in this way, um, you know, that's where you turn for comfort. Um, it was actually um, incredibly you know, I, it was the most important thing, at least in, in, in my personal experience, and I'm sure with, with other converts as well. Um, and this idea of the thing that just really strikes me through today's session, you know, so much of this comes down to what you were talking about, about your individual relationship and, and a sense of, of truth. You know, God truly knows what's in your heart and what your intention is and what your level of sacrifice is, what your willingness is to sacrifice and what your actual sacrifice is. There's not anything you as an individual can do to hide that truth from God. God ultimately knows. Um, and so um, it's just, you know, it, it underscores everything that, I mean, the, you know, the, like all of these lessons just keep coming back and, you know, and revalidating all of the things that we've been learning along the way. And it just underscores again, just that, that how beautiful the nuance, how beautiful, um, you know, like God is so um, accommodating to each ind individual's you know, circumstance in such a dignified and beautiful way, but very truthful and, you know, is, is, telling us that you know this is um this is the way i mean this is this is what's clear this is what is going to make you dignified and elevated and um alhamdulillah so um i mean there's so much that can be said but i, I don't want to I expand more but just to say thank you i think that this was an incredible session and um please take your time because even if we need to spend more days um this is the type of education that ultimately liberates all of us and um we we shouldn't we we shouldn't uh rush through it thank you so much um i don't know i'm, I'm speechless joe do you want to say anything <laughs> anybody <laughs> want to say anything okay truly amazing alhamdulillah thank you guys so much for being with us and um can't wait for another installment next week but um thank you have a wonderful rest of the week. Assalamu alaikum. And we'll see you soon, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.